The Kindness Podcast is made possible by Cornwell Properties in Athens, Ohio. Cornwell Properties offers Ohio University students the best locations to live in Athens. All of their apartments are either on Court Street or within one block. Cornwell Properties. Location matters. Visit their website, cornwellpropertiesathens.com, for more information. Welcome to the Kindness Podcast. I'm Nicole Phillips. Since 1981, GoodWorks has sought to serve the vulnerable, the voiceless, and the powerless in rural Appalachia. As a college student, Keith Wasserman remodeled his college basement into a shelter for the homeless. But that was just the beginning. Forty years later, his work has changed the face of the community. Keith, you're an icon in this community. When I moved here four years ago, it was um, your work with Good Works was one of the first things that I had heard about. And and mm-hmm. people would try to explain to me your story and how the, this, this evolved in your life to change a community so drastically. But I, I haven't heard it from your version. So would you share the story of, of being a student here at Ohio University or... I grew up in Cleveland and came to Athens as a freshman in 76, but I was in uh, my second year of recovery from being an addict. I started using and abusing and then selling amphetamines, barbiturates, LSD, um, and other drugs from the age of the seventh grade. And then I became a Christian in high school, and my life shifted rather dramatically for good I remember coming home, glowing. My mom said, what did you take? Uh, But uh, that was a long time ago and um, started here just um, trying to learn because I had been so out of the learning culture for so long. I did graduate high school, which really was a miracle. And then uh, coming here, I lived on campus. I lived on the East Green most of my years here, immediately formed and organized Christians to come together, and we had a Christian community in the dorm there, and we ate in Shively, and um, then I ended up staying a third year on campus because I wanted to be, I liked being in the dorms, I liked living on campus, but eventually I moved out and we got these different households. At one point, we had about eight different households that we had organized in communities, um, and it was out of that era that I started Good Works, kind of uh, with the gift that I would refer to as naivete. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was motivated by love and um, something in me wanted to give to other people. And, you know, eventually I came up against the obstacles in myself, which is not uncommon that you give and you give and then you find out that you've got weaknesses and limitations. And But the first couple of years were joy. The first year, um, I started in January and then Darlene and I were married in September. So she moved in and uh, we ran this thing out of our house uh, for about four years. And um, just trying to learn how to love people. We weren't, we weren't receiving any income at that time. We just kind of did this because we wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. I felt good about it. I felt I had the skills to do it. And um, it went pretty well. So are you saying you, you literally just had people living in your basement when you say you kind of started this? What did, what did that look like? How did you find people to come and live in your basement? And was there a fear factor in there? Yeah, there was a little bit of a fear factor, but that ended when I stopped watching commercial television. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't watched any commercial television since 1987. And the fear factor shifted dramatically into the trust factor. Because there's pseudo fear and there's real fear. And I think I have a much better understanding on the real fear versus the pseudo fear. But when I started, um, yeah, I was apprehensive. But I had not carried a lot of negative experiences. And so I was a really open. 
And as a Christian, I could say that I feel like God was healing and restoring me and making me whole. And so I really wasn't that afraid of the people that were coming in. And um, I didn't know, you know, information and knowledge kind of creates fear sometimes, but I didn't know a lot. As I say, I had this gift of naivete. But we remodeled the basement of my house on Elliott Street. It has a private entrance, and we put a bathroom in there. So people would come in at 7 p.m., they'd stay overnight, and then they'd leave at 9 in the morning. And we did that for four years, and it went pretty well. Uh, we were kind of getting burned out near the end, but um, we had some volunteers, but it was harder because of the dynamics of our house. Uh, and then we moved to the organization, purchased the property on Central Avenue, which we later named the Timothy House. And that is where we were able to start launching a lot of volunteer opportunities. So how did you get from that speed bump of feeling like we're worn out from this to all of a sudden it cracked open and went huge? Community. <sighs> my my leadership style um, when I started was very strong, very directed, very my way, the highway. <clears throat> and I realized that that wouldn't sustain our organization, mm -hmm. that I needed to be more congenial and much more working alongside. And I, I saw that as a Christian through the lens of discipleship as well, and that is helping people to become followers of Christ using their abilities and their gifts and their talents. And so organizing community became much more sustainable. And today, just interestingly enough, here we are, I'm in year 38 uh, we're putting on our sixth annual Going Deeper seminar in October, and it's really on how to sustain community. It's about the four practices that we've integrated into good works, which are promise-keeping, truth-telling, hospitality, and gratitude, uh, a, a subject for another day. But um, now sustaining community has become extremely important. Um, it's, a, it's a pace. It's not a sprint. Um, and now we, we kind of check in with each other about what's sustainable in terms of vision and ideas. I would Years ago, I would go to a conference and come back with all these great ideas, and people would kind of look at me and go, okay. <laughs> uh, today, I don't do that kind of thing as much anymore. We have to have ownership, uh, accountability, and autonomy. Those are, they actually stay in a triangle, and there's a tension between those two. And all the staff have a measure of ownership, a measure of autonomy, and a measure of accountability. Mm -hmm. And then I bet they all feel... Uh, a sense of just great pride in knowing that they are essential to the organization because they hold a piece of each of those. Absolutely. So the Timothy House you mentioned, that's one of the one of the um, columns, I guess, of what you have going on. Explain how the Timothy House works. So the Timothy House today is a little different than when we started. When I started, uh, I would take people in 24-7 or in the middle of the night, and then we moved it over to the Central Avenue neighborhood, and I'd drive over to Central Avenue because I lived on L.A. Street, and I'd take people in the middle of the night, and then we operated a lot of intakes in the middle of the night up until about 10 years ago, and then we began to stop taking anyone new in from midnight to 7 a.m. because, again, it wasn't sustainable. We weren't going to be able to keep staff. Uh, and then in 2014, we had a fire, and uh, that changed the trajectory of the future of the Timothy House. And now we don't take anyone on an emergency basis. So we stopped being an emergency shelter about four years ago. Um, and th that's in part because of the opiate epidemic. We aren't able to manage that in an emergency situation. We need to slow things down. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, we're helping families. I got two families and six kids there right now, and they've been there for a while. We're having single men and single women uh, who are either committed to some form of recovery or committed to um, working or, or on some kind of support system. You know, if you could dissect 
homelessness, you can probably find 10 different issues that cause people into the situation of homelessness. Language has become very important for us. And so we are pushing back from the phrase, the homeless, and prefer the more awkward phrase, people without homes, because we want to separate what's happened to someone from their identity as a human being. So language has become important, and um, we're making a lot of efforts to shift our language to clothe people with dignity. Mm-hmm. And remind, first, you're a person. Absolutely. Then we can... We can take care of the rest of this. So talk about some of the other pillars that you have there. There's a transformation station, a Friday night life. Talk about, um, it just, I just think good works like, woo, it's a lot. So how do you break it down? Well, we call them initiatives, and they've all kind of flown out of each other. Friday Night Life started when people moved out of the Timothy House, and we invited them to come back to stay connected, and they came and came and came. And within a few months, 40 people were coming for supper. We moved it down to the Central United Methodist Church, and it grew further. And ultimately, people were coming not just for food, but for community. And it is a community, and on any given night, there's 100, sometimes as many as 150 people, uh, and a lot of kids, and a lot of teens now. This is the 25th year of providing this every Friday night, uh, and it goes pretty well on any given Friday night. There's a lot of variety of experiences, all intended to build community between the haves and the have-nots. It's Mm. part of our mission is to help the haves, so to speak, there's a lot of words to describe this group, to see that they are missing something in life unless until they have relationships with the have-nots. Um, And I hear a lot of lectures on the subject of poverty, but I will tell you that until uh, someone has a relationship with someone in poverty, the sentence sounds understandable. It's not very clear. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't know what you're talking about and you don't know what your understanding is of it. Well, we're in an academic institution and people study poverty. My point is, We all need to have some connection to a person in order to be fully informed of what we're studying. Do you still do what I know you have done in the past, which is actually become a person without a home for a bit? Yeah, I do. I don't like it. When I first started, it was 19... (laughs) Of course. (laughs) 1989 in Lexington, Kentucky. I've done 11 cities. Um, They all really are helpful in terms of my understanding on how to run a shelter It's important that those of us who operate shelters, in my view, understand what it's like to be on the other side, to be misunderstood, to feel disrespected, to be disrespected, to have to eat the food, um, that you don't have a choice about what you're eating, to have a bedtime, to have a wake-up call, to have rules. Those are essential learning components to, in my view, running a shelter. Okay. And so that's what you find when you you just go with the clothes on your back or mm-hmm. do you you know bring your wallet and just in case things get bad, what happens there? Well, it's changed over the year. When I first went, I didn't take any identification. Now I know I have to take something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've created a, the government as a, a system called HMIS, which is Homeless Management Information. So it's um, it's become much more, and I'm going to underscore the phrase, much more dehumanizing now than it was when I first started. Mm-hmm. Extremely dehumanizing to go through. Um, and um, I think it's important that 
if that's the problem that we, on the front end of helping people, humanize. You have this phrase about kindness. I think there's a lot of humanization that we've lost. Um, you, you feel like you're a number. Uh, I went into the local hospital, took someone that was suicidal. To make a long story short, I'm waiting. Eventually, they get a room, and eventually a staff person comes in. And the first question out of their mouth to this person who is suicidal is, social security number? In that tone. And I intervened, and I said, how about starting with a name? And I think that the danger of those on the front lines of the helping profession who are in the streams of funding sources, our temptation is to dehumanize. Mm -hmm. And my most recent experience was Columbus, Ohio. But before that, I was in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and it was a very dehumanizing experience. But I don't think people realize it because they're so vulnerable and they're so dependent that they put up with a lot. We'll get back to our conversation with Keith in a moment, but first, today's Kindness Call, sponsored by Cornwell Properties, where location matters. My name is Sheila Warren. We live in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Um, I'd like to tell you about my son, Ryan. He's 13. In 2015, he started an anti-bullying campaign called Stand Up and Be Heard. Stop bullying now. We started this program after I had to pull him out of school due to bullying. Um, and he wanted to talk to other people and try and stop bullying. We now do different kindness projects because we believe a kinder world will put a stop to bullying. We have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we just finished... Um, October, which was our fourth year of collecting socks during the month of October for homeless veterans and um, needy families in our area. And we will be distributing um, the socks for the veterans because our town does a, um event called the Veterans Stand Down in February. Um so yeah, that's our story. My, um, I mean, it goes on longer. We, he still consider he still goes through bullying. I've also gone through bullying um, as an adult um, through Facebook um, and through personal experiences. And bullying is a topic that needs to stay in the forefront. That we believe and we believe we can fight it through kindness. Did you know you can be on the Kindness Podcast? Call the Kindness Hotline with your story. You can leave us a voicemail at the number in the description of this podcast. Now, back to the show. So you have a son named Timothy, and I'm curious as a parent how uh, it worked growing up and raising a son in an environment in which you were pretty much always, it sounds like, accessible to other people who needed you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll talk about this, and then we'll get back to some of the other initiatives. That oh, I'm to. sorry. That's all right. So <laughs> Tim Tim came into our lives um, when uh, we were 32 years old. We'd been married about 10 years. The phone rang. The woman says to me, are you Keith Wasserman? I said, yes. She says, God spoke to me and told me to call you and ask you if you want to adopt a baby. I said, who are you? She told me who she was. I'd never heard of her. That was on uh, April 15th of 1990. I don't know whether she was a crazy person or a real person. I just said, all I can tell you is that we'll pray about it. She calls me back two days later. She says, well, have you come up with an answer? 
Uh, this was April 17th. I said, well, I can tell you we're open to continuing the conversation. And eventually we did continue the conversation. On the morning of May 2nd, from April 17th to May 2nd, she calls us. She says, you have a baby. You can pick him up tomorrow morning. We went to the hospital. We got a court order. We picked up that child at one day old, and that child we named Timothy. And it's been a miracle adoption. And um, it's just amazing to see what I would call as a Christian, the sovereign intervention of God into our lives. He's 28, and here we are 28 years later. Let's go back to some of those other initiatives that I totally cut you off of. (laughs) That's all right. So um, Friday Night Life is a big part of the Good Works community, and this is, as I said, 25th year. Then we have the Transformation Station, which was our vision is to help people get things they need who live in Athens County. Um, but we, uh, I wanted to find a third way. The traditional ways is you either sell them something or you give them something. And so we created what I would like to call a sweat equity volunteer opportunity to help people get five things. Uh, the most significant is cars and furniture, appliances, bicycles, and non-emergency food. And so we invite people who are struggling with poverty and the challenges therein to become volunteers in this program and then they use their skills and ability. We clothe them with dignity. We invite them in the community. It's transformational. They use their skills and abilities. We send them out into the community along with other volunteers just to help and assist people who are struggling with poverty. And it's been an amazing experience. Uh, we just provided car number 171. So that's 171 families who have donated cars. We're looking for families who would, would be interested in donating a car. Uh, Mm -hmm. But people donate uh, washers and dryers, other appliances. And the food is all non-emergency food. They can go and volunteer one morning, which is three hours, and then go shopping in the food pantry. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. Okay, what other initiatives do you have that we should know about? Well, on an average year, we're bringing into Athens County somewhere between three and 400 volunteers from Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois. We call them work retreats. A lot of people know them as uh, short-term mission teams. They come for a weekend in the fall and spring. We have a group coming from Salina, Ohio, tomorrow. And they've been with us for many years. So of the 40 groups that come, 20 or so are repeaters. And so we'll send them out to do service. And then someone in the transformation station will join them and work alongside them. It's really important uh, that they have that kind of uh, mutuality experience. So uh, we're building ramps, we're fixing roofs, we're doing labor-intensive things primarily for widows. Um, So as a Christian, um, we look at these three groups of people that repeat themselves in Scripture over and over again, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. So our focus is primarily in the Neighbors Helping Neighbors, which is the name of that initiative, on caring for widows. On an average year, we'll have about 60 families in the county, from New Marshville to Coolville to Gloucester to Albany, that we're involved with, just providing a vehicle through which volunteers can go out and serve these families. And how did these people find you? Um, not the volunteers necessarily, but the people that you're serving, the widows. Yeah, it's mostly word of mouth. We don't do too much advertising. Mm-hmm. And we normally have more opportunities than we have the capacity. Mm. Yeah, And it's not an emergency program. We can't come tomorrow and fix something. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. How do you keep your cup full, Keith? It just, I mean, wow. Wow. You are seeing on a regular basis, I am sure, um, people coming in and you you think 
this is the time that they're going to get it together. This is the time that they're that they're going to be able to say no to the temptation of drugs or whatever it is. And then it's not. So I have a personal like reflection on the how I keep myself, but then we have an organizational vision. And that is, it fits into everyone's sustainability. And that is that the work we do is not to fix people, but to love people. And so the, we're not results-oriented. It's human and reasonable that we would want to be results-oriented. We want to see change in people's lives. We want to know that the energy we're putting out is actually having a positive impact. But we are instead worship-oriented. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it is an act of worship no less significant than an offering of a song in a worship service. Whether you're serving or making breakfast or cleaning up the table or just listening to someone, in my view, it's an offering. And so that creates a much more powerful sustainability. Now, it doesn't mean that we can be sloppy. We still are committed to excellence and doing our best, but it's an offering. Uh, we don't, we're not results-oriented. <clears throat> On a personal level, I find that joy strength is an important part of my journey, and that if I don't have joy, I should stop and ask that question. Joy becomes the strength of my day-to-day -day life, um, and there's nourishment. There's, of course, food and physical nourishment. There's spiritual nourishment that I need to have in order to be able to do what I do. But joy plays an important part. And the kingdom of God, in my understanding, is righteousness, peace, and joy. So <clears throat> I look for that. Um, I have trying to keep a good pace as I'm getting old. I turned 60 this year. Mm -hmm. uh, started when I was 22. So right. uh, I'm slowing down. I know that. And um, I'm putting other people into other responsibilities. And my job really is to honor them and to equip them to do more than to just to do more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know that there's going to be somebody listening who says, Joy, Joy, I want that. How do I get that? So um, when you talk about having joy, where does that come from for you? For me, it just comes from an abiding. That's a term from the Bible in John chapter 15, uh, where Jesus speaks and says, abide in me. Okay. And I think there is a sense of rhythm of, uh, and along with joy comes peace. Now, if my peace is disturbed, I need to step back and ask why. And it could be uh, un something unethical or, or even immoral, and I need to step back and repent of that. But it could be that just something has happened and I need to get realigned and recentered, but these are good indicators for sustainability. I, you know, I, I've practiced these things as a Christian, um, and they, they become the kind of force for my own sustainability. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about somebody who doesn't have a faith? Do you, is there a way for them to build joy into their lives? Well, there are things I think we can do as an expression of giving and service and kindness that I think have a boomerang effect into our lives, mm -hmm. providing we don't have a conditional love attitude. Because if we are waiting for someone to say thank you or I really appreciate you, it actually will spoil our joy. And I say anyone that's raised children understands how to die <laughs> to their need to be appreciated. We need to kind of come up at least with a philosophy that is a giving and serving philosophy where we don't expect. I don't know that we could come up with this by ourselves. I think communities and organizations even if they're not religious, have to have some forms that help people create the thinking that sustains them in giving. When some people are like, you do something really nice and they're really mean back. Mm -hmm. And are you going to carry that? Or are you going to, how do you figure out how to let that go? Right. You got to shake it off. Yeah.
All right. Before we let you go, do you have one favorite act of kindness story? Or it doesn't have to even be a favorite, just uh, an act of kindness either you've done for someone or that that someone has done for you that showed up or maybe something you've witnessed? Yes, I should have come prepared to answer this question. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I like putting people on the spot and, and making them think about it and, and wiggle a little bit, and then they always come up with something amazing. <laughs> I consider it a privilege to be present in the lives of people who are vulnerable. It gives me a lot of joy, and I feel very protective, particularly of traditionally like despised groups of people. Uh, For whatever reason, I feel very protective of them. It gives me a lot of joy. And I think there are opportunities to step in to show kindness. When the rest of the culture seems to be going one way, you can go another way. And that doesn't endorse the particular thing that they live or believe, but I think it just gives them as an individual the recognition that they are a human being made in the image of God, worthy of kindness and dignity and service and love. Um, To me, um, I know that's kind of more philosophical, so I I don't know if I have time. Yes. Uh, And When I was in my 30s, a man came to the Timothy house who had been in jail for 35 years, and I just considered it such an awesome opportunity to receive him and to show him kindness and to be the first place he had come to after being locked up. It was just an adventure. Um, It was a great opportunity for me. And I consider those things as they continue to happen um, just opportunities for us. It's a privilege. Um, I, I, I don't know that I was taught that anywhere, but I see that it is a privilege to serve people who are in these situations of vulnerability. There's um, a Catholic priest named Father Gregory Boyle who said, instead of saving people, let's savor them. And I feel like you really epitomize that, that you really take great great joy out of savoring people around you. So thank you so much for all of the work that you do with Good Works. Thank you for taking the time and to come and talk with us today. Thank you. That was a conversation with Keith Wasserman. To learn more about Good Works, you can visit good-works.net. Thanks for listening to The Kindness Podcast. It's produced by WOUB Public Media and relies heavily on the kindness of engineer Adam Rich and intern Chloe Meston. I'm Nicole Phillips. We hope you'll subscribe to The Kindness Podcast wherever you listen and find us on social media at Kindness Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to spread some kindness in the review section. 